Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And it wasn't so much I have to leave everything behind because we don't have to do anything, but it was this moment of like, you know, I feel called to do this work in this moment in this way. And it was a choice to leave. And it was a choice to say that, like, you know, I have a job. It's a good job. I like the work I do. I want to do different work. And I'll, I'll always be able to find a job. But this moment seems really important in a way that we all need to show up. And I need to show up in the best way I can. So for me, it was, uh, you know, leaving the school system was like the only way that I could show up in the fullness of the way I wanted to show up. And that was important to me. But it was really the second I was in St. Louis was the first time that I was tear gassed. And that really was like a... You know, we have been taught that, that those days were behind us, that we knew injustice existed, but like never that you get tear gassed or you get shot out with rubber bullets or pepper sprayed or those sort of things for simply telling the truth about the conditions in this world and certainly this country. That was Jeray McKesson. I'm San Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. The death of Michael Brown changed Ray McKesson's life. It changed all of our lives. But it was the unjust murder of the 18-year-old Brown that propelled McKesson into protest. Since the shooting in August of 2014, DeRay has been an active and visible member of the Black Lives Matter movement. You've most likely read his tweets, which he filed as real-time dispatches throughout the protests in Ferguson, Baltimore, and beyond. Or... Perhaps you've seen him on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, sporting his signature blue vest Patagonia as he helped the titular host address his own white privilege. Why do you think white people are uncomfortable talking about race? 
or I can't speak for other white people. Okay. Uh, I feel I feel guilty for anyone who does not have the things I have, and that includes you know black people or anyone, because I am so blessed that I think there's always the fear that it will be taken from you. And then what can you do to manage that guilt? Like, what have you found? I drink a fair amount. You drink. <laughs> <laughs> You're great. I get. I mean, I'm. You know, I don't know. I'm shooting from the hip here. Shooting from the hip here. Uh, had you on the show, does that help at all? You know, baby steps. Got to start baby somewhere, steps. right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Got to create space for the conversation. We uh -huh. can't address what we don't talk about. I was at the march on Washington. Does that help? You, you were at the march on Washington. I was. My mom was there, and she was pregnant with me. Ah! Oh, nice. I love it. I love it. I love it. Baby steps. Baby steps. Literal, literal baby that steps. Was that was good. DeRay McKesson, everybody. We'll be right back. In the intervening years, DeRay's voice has only been amplified. He has over one million Twitter followers. He's met with former President Barack Obama on issues of police union contracts, the water crisis in Flint, and the school-to-prison pipeline. His most recent endeavor is a new memoir called On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. On this episode of the show, we discuss uh, much of what's in the book itself, early memories of the Black Lives Matter movement, supporting Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election, the role of social media in contemporary politics, what he learned from running for mayor of Baltimore, the criticisms he's faced from fellow activists, and the hope he maintains for a better future. So, finally, here is DeRay McKesson. I want to start with a quote in your book. You wrote, We aren't born woke. Something wakes us up. And uh, I, I know you have written so much about uh, this idea, but I was interested, when in your life do you feel like you woke up, or what event incited that? There's so many things that make me, uh, that really push me to like think about the world differently. Teaching was one of them, that I remember being in the classroom, and I always understood injustice at like a theoretical level and in my own life I understood it I was an organizer in Baltimore but it was one of those things where you teach every day and you actually like see kids like learn skills you see where learning gaps were long before they got to your classroom you see uh, what it means to equip parents and you see how like a system and structure isn't funded so all kids can learn like that was really eye-opening for me and why I spent most of my career in public education uh, the second was was obviously the the death of Mike Brown that really changed so much for me. It was like I I understood the violence of the police to be real. You know, I write about in the book having a gun pulled on me by an officer uh, in Baltimore, but I didn't understand that it was as endemic and as pervasive across the country as it is until uh, the protests began. And those are two like moments that really like sort of challenged me to think about the world differently. You know, in that moment, he's killed August ninth uh, of twenty fourteen. And you drive, uh, you leave your state and you drive over there and, and you are leaving, you know, as you write, a very successful life in public education. You had a job that had a six-figure salary and you're leaving a whole life behind. I know when you're driving there, you don't know that that's going to happen. But I guess I want to know, at what point did you realize, 
I have to leave all that I've created behind. Yeah, you know, it was it was really the second night that I got was in St. Louis was the first night that I was tear gassed. And it wasn't so much I have to leave everything behind because we don't have to do anything. But it was this moment of like, you know, I feel called to do this work in this moment in this way. And it was a choice to leave. And it was a choice to say that, like, you know, I have a job. It's a good job. I like the work I do. I want to do different work. And I'll, I'll always be able to find a job. But this moment seems really important in a way that we all need to show up. And I need to show up in the best way I can. So for me, it was, uh, you know, leaving the school system was, like, the only way that I could show up in the fullness of the way I wanted to show up. And that was important to me. But it was really the second night I was in St. Louis was the first night that I was tear gassed. And that really was, like, a... You know, we had been taught that, that those days were behind us, that we knew injustice existed, but like never that you get tear gassed or you get shot out with rubber bullets or pepper sprayed or those sort of things for simply telling the truth about the conditions in this world and certainly this country. Was it scary to leave that security that you had back home? You know, it was scary to be quiet. There were so many of us who, like, we were quiet for so long. We did everything people told us to do. We marched. We called. We went to the meetings. We emailed. And, like, the outcomes didn't change. So the least we could do in those moments was, like, take to the streets. Like, that was, like, the—that seemed like the most reasonable thing to do. Uh, So, yeah, it was scary to be quiet. It was scary to, like, watch all these things happen and just— uh, not speak as loudly as, as I could. It was scary to go to work every day and, and realize the police were just killing people and and just and just go about my day. That was scary. Uh, you know, I had faith that I would find another job. Like, I'm young. I had faith that, like, there will always be work to do. And uh, even if it's not the work that I did before, that I'll find new work. So I wasn't scared about that. You know, at, at that time in 2014, I was a college student. And I, I, I just, I have this distinct memory. I, I went to school in San Francisco and I remember following your tweets at that time. And, and a bunch of us in San Francisco thought we should fly to the Midwest and we should do something. We of course did not um, do that. Um, we probably should have, but I always wondered, you know, I was like in my dorm and I always thought, how did you manage the day-to-day of, of, of fighting this fight in that moment? You know, this is a question for all of us. It's like, you know, I'm mindful that I was one of many people on the street, one of many people who stayed in the street, of one of many people who committed. And like, well, I think we all managed it differently, right? Like for me, it was a like, just tunnel vision was really helpful to me. That like, I was like, in the work I was doing, we had the newsletter back then, like it was just the grind. There were other people who like, and I was close to some people who needed like a little bit of um, family time, right? Like that was sort of how they managed it is that they were like hardcore in the street and then they went home to family to like reset. But like I wasn't from St. Louis, so I didn't, you know, the people I met in St. Louis were my family in some ways. So that wasn't a way that I could sort of recharge. It was really like being alone was my way to recharge, like being in the car alone or like being in, you know, I slept in a lot of spare bedrooms and stuff like that. And like that was sort of my way to just like, think through it but the reality is that it was so much so quick in such volume that like i don't think many of us were like stopping to process everything in the moment so i didn't like have to step back and sort of think about how to wade through it until the first wave of protests the 400 days had ended then it was like okay let me look back and like wow that all just happened like that but everything was just so intense and so quick that i was sort of like head down just like 
going as fast as I could. Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine the the whirlwind of that. There's probably not that much time for reflection. Yeah, it was just yeah. I don't know a different way to say it is. I for me, it was just like very tunnel vision. Like we got work to do, and the police are so wild and so intense that that was like what we did. And you know, it wasn't until like I said, it wasn't until the first week of protest ended that I like stepped back and was like, oh okay, like wow, we did that and we did that and like we should somebody should like map out how we did that because that was really incredible or like we did that and it didn't work, but we figured something else out. So, so yeah. I, I, this may be a really dumb question, and if it is, you can just say it's dumb and I'll ask something else. But in that time, I, I know there was a whole bunch of back and forth that you had with police, um, most of which was their attempt to suppress the protest, especially the rule they passed overnight, the standstill uh, rule. Did you ever have any dialogue? with any officer that felt like in the moment that you were changing someone's mind? In St. Louis, it, dialogue is like a strong word. I don't, I'm not sure we were having much time. They weren't interested in having conversations with us. Um, so no. Okay. Forget dialogue. Let's use a different word. A, a conversation or a, maybe a screaming match. I don't know. You, you find the right word. No, St. Louis was really different. You know, I've been to most of the cities in protest. St. Louis was, a, because St. Louis was the first city, um, they were just like the most brazen and the most intense. And there wasn't really like a place for, they weren't interested in dialogue, even if we might have been. Um, and, you know, you likely only know Mike Brown's name, but the police killed nine people right after Mike Brown. So, like, I don't know what they could have said to us that would have made us believe that they were not a threat to people, given that they just kept killing people, even in the midst of the protest. So, so yeah, so no, not, uh, you know, there are other cities, you know, post uh, the initial wave of protests in Ferguson, like there have been police officers, police chiefs, namely, who have wanted to sit down at the table, have wanted to rewrite their use of force policies, have wanted to think about, like, structural changes, things like that. St. Louis, the St. no police department in the St. Louis region, as as far as I was a part of, uh, was interested in those things in any tangible way. Mm. Do you, do you have a distinct memory? You you write so beautifully in the book about memory and what we do to comb it and reconfigure in a way that you know uh, shields us from pain. I, I know you've said much about how you are one of many, and I, I want to keep in mind throughout this whole interview, I know there are hundreds and hundreds upon thousands of people that have made this movement possible. But since I only have you on the show, about your experiences, do you remember when it, when it became apparent that you really had a, a sizable place in this movement? Yeah, you know, um, the beauty of the initial wave of protests is that we were just so focused on the stuff in front of us. So I had the same amount of influence in St. Louis from 10,000 followers to 500,000. It just didn't it just didn't change what I was able to do. So, you know, one of the things I did was like uh, centralize information. So I would get calls being like, tell people to show up here. I'd say it. A lot of people come, you know, because I was at almost everything, I would say like this happened, this didn't happen. And like that was sort of like a record, uh, like sort of an official record on behalf of the protesters. Uh, and that sort of remained the same all the way through. It wasn't until uh, the initial wave of protests ended that I realized that people all across the world have followed me or like have followed all of us, had looked at the live streams, have followed my Twitter feed. 
And then it was like, oh, this is different and this is interesting. Uh, but in the moment, it was like, it just wasn't, I don't know, I had the same level of influence. So I remember when I started the newsletter and people started reading the newsletter, that was a moment uh, because I would only put five articles in the newsletter every day, like five or six, like it started as five. Um, and because that sort of became the funnel for how people read news who were actually in the protest, I would get a lot of what I would now call like pitches, but back then it was just like random emails and stuff. I would get emails from reporters being like, hey, can you include this article? Da, da, da. That's how I know a lot of publications because like they would try and get their article in the newsletter. Um, so those were things I remember like that were sort of defining moments. But in terms of like the way you probably, the, the spirit in which you asked the question about visibility, it was just the same for me on the ground, like from sort of, the earliest days till the very end, it wasn't until they ended that it became like, a, oh, people uh, people really were watching. People did know all these things. People did see a play-by-play watching me. Mm. So once the initial wave of protest ends, now now that we can look back on it, is there something you would have done differently or, or, or your, you know, the folks you worked with, do you think there's something you would have done different that you now know? No, no. I think the way we... For the most part, I think, like, I stand, you know, we learned so much very quickly, uh, and we did everything the best we thought we could do. So, you know, that was important. I think that I would have been more mindful of a national narrative, and that just, like, wasn't on our mind then. Like, we weren't, we never would have thought that, like, the narrative would, would become some of what it has become today. This idea that, like, national groups came to Ferguson provided all this infrastructure and framework and that's how the protests began or this notion that the protests in Ferguson were the inevitable result of other people's organizing, not people who were there, you know, like those things we just weren't even thinking about. Mm. So it wasn't until the wave ended that I like realized that they had taken hold and like as somebody whose responsibility or role it was to just like help manage the messaging on on, like the protester in, um, I would have been probably a little more diligent about sort of checking those false narratives really quick. I just didn't think because they hold the, because they, this is a sort of like the double edged sword about the tunnel vision because in St. Louis, they had no sway because we knew they weren't true. It just like, they weren't, it just didn't, it never reached my radar in a way that like I should actually say something about it. Cause we knew it wasn't true. Uh, I never thought that people across the country would read these things and be like, Oh, this is like a, these organizations did come in and provide like we knew it wasn't true so it wasn't even a thing to respond to i had no perspective on like the national conversation right you you have a quote another i mean i'm i'm going to keep reciting quotes in the book back for people who have not read it but also because there are a lot of lines that i wrote down over the last couple of days of reading but this one uh comes from an interview you did with uh, david axelrod And you said, I'm not convinced we can train people not to be racist. And uh, that was said, I think you said that, you know, over two years ago. I want to know how you feel about that now in 2018. Yeah, I think we can like train you to understand equity. I think that we can train you to like understand the importance of diversity inclusion and I can train you about social welfare programs. I can train you. But like, if you actually just believe that black people aren't worthy people, then like, I don't, I just, maybe, and that could be my deficiency. Like, I just don't know what the training looks like. I don't know how to 
create an experience for you that is not demeaning to somebody else that like has you see another person as a human being that to me seems like a choice and I don't know how training addresses that uh, but I think that we can train a lot of things I'm not I, I don't know how to train someone not to be racist we can train people to like understand their own biases and like but that requires that you walk in with like a basic notion that like everybody is worthy <laughs> Uh, right. And like, I don't think it's my role to like give you that basic notion. Right. Do you think that problem or like the sort of uh, inborn racism is a problem of past generations? Or do you think young people now are still grappling with the same racism in, embedded inside them? No, I think that, you know, what the Trump base shows is it's not just young people. You know, I remember being at, I was at Made in America maybe two years ago and, or maybe a year ago, maybe it's two years ago I was at Made in America and um, young white, he's like young white man, he's like maybe 22-ish. He saw me, he was like, oh, I know you and I like went to go shake his hand. He was like, no, 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 I'm voting for Trump or like I'm supporting Trump. And I remember being like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> Um, so I, you know, it is a reminder that, you know, older people certainly show up in a, in a particular way, but, uh, there's a whole set of young people who have been emboldened by uh, this administration for sure. So it's certainly not a thing of the past. I have a lot of hope for this generation, the generation after mine, uh, and the numbers are on our side. The question is like, can we organize them? It's not a matter of, are there more of us than them? There are. The question is, can we organize them? Yeah, I have a, a couple things about organization. You write about it in the book. I, I want to go back to 2015, 2016, when, uh, you know, you and, and a few others had a couple different meetings uh, with Hillary Clinton at the time. I know looking back on it must be a little strange. I think it's, it's hard for all of us to, to look at that time. But in that moment, what were your impressions about what was to come and how Hillary was going to potentially be our president you know i supported hillary very publicly in the washington post um and in that i noted that we didn't agree about everything wasn't you know yeah we weren't aligned on everything but i agreed with more of her than what i disagree with and and i believed him you know like i didn't think he was joking i believed everything he said when it was racist and xenophobic and misogynist like i believed those things and I think that one of the big takeaways from that is that the best story doesn't always win. It's the story that people hear over and over and over is what wins. And uh, and that people aren't interested just in voting against something. They want to vote for someone or for something. So, yeah, I'm reminded of those things. But, you know, we can't take for granted that just because uh, the opponent is so wild and reckless that people will naturally be mobilized. I think that that was really shattered in this last election. So... I'm hopeful about 2020. I think there are a lot of promising people. I'm hopeful about this next Congress, about the Ocasio-Cortezes, about the Ayanna Presleys. I'm excited about the potential of Vangelis and Gillum. So uh, I think there's a lot of energy. Uh, again, the question is always, uh, once we build the energy, can we turn that into power? Can we turn that into systemic and structural change that will outlast the program? What do you think prevents us from doing that? I think there are a lot of things, but the central thing is that, you know, when you think about the difference between the right and the left is that the right is engaged in nostalgia, uh, that it's always about memory and recall. They are like taking us back to a time that we've survived or tried to wade through before. The left, the best of us, are always engaged in make-believe, that we're trying to help people tell a story about a world they haven't seen before, uh, but that we know is possible. And that's just hard work. So 
Yeah, finding people who can lead us and who can tell a story that we want to believe or who are people who have values that we can follow into a land we've never lived in is just harder work. I think some people, you know, it's what people love about Ocasio-Cortez is that, like, you might not agree with everything she's saying, but you, like, you believe in the way she thinks about the world that we haven't seen yet. And you believe the way she talks about a future in which every kid can eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like, that actually matters. And I think that there's a generation of older politicians that just are focus grouped and polled to death who like haven't yet figured out how to tell a story about the future that makes sense do you think that's because they feel like they don't fit into that nope i think they just don't know how to do it i think that like it's you know focus groups the the left is like elites to elites uh and you know people are focus grouped to death is that like i think that what trump showed is that people people some people value authenticity more than everything else and there are a lot of politicians, not just on the left, who like always sound like a talking point and like always sound like they just rehearsed and da da da. And like, I think people have reached a point where they're just like that. That type of politics didn't lead to the change that we were promised in. So they're just ready for honesty, and they're ready for like a candor. They're ready for like a message that they can understand and repeat over and over. You know, I think about if I can't explain it to my aunt, then it doesn't matter. Not because my aunt is stupid, but because she just doesn't watch CNN all day. And I think that the there's so many people who only talk to the people who watch CNN every day, all day. And like, that's just not America. Right. I, I think part of breaking through, it, it seems that you've done that on social media, especially. I mean, you've done so much good on that platform. Like it's, you're, you know, it's hard to do good on social media it seems at least for most people but i guess there's there's that criticism especially after 2016 of how the platform fosters like you know a a false sense of activism of progression how it allows people to believe that they are you know making a difference while they don't leave their homes do you buy any of that you know, I always think about protest as the idea of telling the truth in public, and I'll never criticize people for telling the truth wherever they tell it. So I'm cool with you telling it the dinner table, online, like, at work, like, whatever. Like, that actually matters. You know, with the platforms, it's like some people come to the platforms bad, and that's not the platform's fault. Like, they, you know, some people, you just were bad before you ever got a computer or a phone, and, like, you showed up on Twitter evil. And there are other people who, like, get to the platforms, and they become radicalized on the platform, and that's where the, responsi- that's where the responsibility lies, is to make sure that those communities of hate don't form. I think that Twitter's gotten better at it. I think that Facebook is a little slower to figure it out. Uh, but that's sort of generally how I think about the platforms. Uh, I think that, you know, the Russia stuff, Facebook was really bad on the messaging, right? They were like, we, nothing happened. And then it was like, not only did something happen, but millions of people were impacted. And, you know, you have to believe that an organization with that much infrastructure and, and that many tools would have caught something like that much sooner. So uh, that worries me a lot. Uh, but we'll see. You know, like I, I have a lot of hope in the platforms. I think that we'll continue to see platforms emerge. I think that we're, I think that we're just at the beginning of seeing the way that social media sort of moves offline conversations and organizing. And I think that like the first wave of the movement was about awareness. It was about like, you know, if we hadn't seen the street in those early days, nobody be talking about these issues. So the first part was like to get people to even acknowledge these things as issues. The second part of the work is like, how do we translate the awareness into action? And I think that there's some people who haven't transitioned yet. There are a lot of people who like are still stuck in the awareness part. And like, we sort of did the awareness thing. Like we got it. We changed the language. People are out talking about it. Uh, the way you use a tool just changes when it when the when the goal changes, and I think that there's some people uh, slowly making that transition. Mm. I I have a more human question for you. 
you've done so many interviews at this point, right? I mean, I, I can't even, I don't even think we could calculate how many, like hundreds of interviews. Is that fair? Hundreds? Thousands, maybe? I've done a lot of interviews. <laughs> well, for one, I want to start with this. I apologize for all the ones that didn't go well or that were incredibly boring. Secondly, are you at all fatigued by having to answer the same questions that people keep giving you? Yes, fatigued. Yeah, you know, I, because I've done so many, there's so many things that are just public knowledge at this point. So it's sort of odd when people um, reach out and are really insistent on an interview, which is fine. And I try to do as many as possible. Like, I, you know, I'm sensitive to the, like, I've been on Colbert and The Daily Show and The Nightly Show and all those things. And, like, that's not the only way I want to show up in the world. So it's important to me to do interviews with, like, new publications, too, or, like, you know, students writing reports. Like I try to, wherever I can make it work, I try to make it work. Um, it is odd though to do interviews where people ask questions like, you know, what did you do in education? It's like things that are just like sort of basic and I've answered it literally 10 million times. And not, they ask not in an effort to like sort of build onto a question, but literally just as like a fact-based question. And those things are... Um, I think my patience for those things is just like, I, I'll do the interview cause whatever, I'm already on the phone by the time I realized, you know, this is how basic it'll be. Um, but I no longer answer questions that people don't ask. So I'm not doing the work for the other person anymore. Like if you don't ask the question about the relationship between X and Y, then like, I'm not just randomly going to answer it for you. Um, people have to show up and be engaged enough in the conversation to do that work. And then I'll show up too. If we can, if you're okay with it, I'd like to chart into some territory I don't think you've talked about so much. You write in your book, I've received death threats. FBI has visited my house. My phone has been hacked. Cities have hired surveillance companies that have deemed me a serious threat. And a movie theater was evacuated because I received a threat that I'd be shot during a screening. What does that do to... Your your spirit as just a as a person in the world. What, what does that do to you? Mm, I think you know. I try not to be. I, I'm mindful that the goal is to make me too afraid to do the work. So I try never to be too afraid to do the work, even when I'm mindful of safety. So the, that's true. Um, you know, I think that it's a comedy. I I don't spend that much time thinking about those things until I have to, and I'm in a place. I'm like, oh, did something just happen to my phone, or like you know, is there an easy way to get out of this building or, the, you know, things like that. Like, so I don't, I don't actually focus on that as much because it would, I think it would just spiral. I think that four years in, you know, like you asked about a lot of, a lot of interviews, a lot of conversations is that I spit, I don't spend as much time around people that I've known for a long time. I'm around new people a lot and I really like being around new people. I think I'm more and more committed to being around people um, that I know. So the idea of the, like, go where the love is, I think I didn't understand that before recently, and I do now. That, like, I think being in proximity to so much death so often um, has made me even more appreciative of, like, the moments of joy that I spend with people that I've had long relationships with or, or new people that I've met that I have deep relationships with. Uh, and that's where I, like, like to spend most of the time that I have. So like I'm home today, we're having this call today. I'm home. It's the first full day I've been home in a month. And like, you know, it's, 
I've only, I'm only doing a few things today. And, like, the rest of the day is, like, doing laundry and, like, talking to my friends on the phone and, like, you know, I'm going to FaceTime my niece and nephew tonight. And, like, those sort of things that I don't have to share with the world, they're sort of just mine. And, um, and I'm, and I'm cool with that. Like, I want, I miss those moments, uh, right. given that I've led such a fast life for, for the past four years. Yeah. I mean, does the fastness and speed of that life make it hard to just live outside of, of the work? No, not hard to live. I think what's interesting is that, you know, it's funny because there are people who, um, I like to say yes wherever I can. Like that is, uh, you know, like Black History Month is so interesting because it's like literally fifth graders, sixth graders will email being like, can we do a project? I'm like, yes. You know, I try to say yes wherever I can. But it's interesting because some people will demand all of you. They'll ask questions like this, right? They want to know about self-care, those sort of things. While really, like, if I had moved the interview, people would have lost their mind. Like, it, it actually isn't about me, but it's, like, the performance of being about me. So so I'm, like, much more mindful of those things uh, four years in than I was at the beginning. That like, if you let people, they will literally use you all up and then, you know, you're done. And they're like, I got an episode or I got an interview or I got I wrote that article. And you're like, you almost killed me, you know, like... I tried to move it and you literally tried to make it sound like I don't care about black people. So <laughs> those things are interesting. Um, Has that happened? Yeah. You know, it's a lot of people. It's like people who, you know, will move something or like it just doesn't work out or the timing and, and the message or they'll text me 10,000 times. And it's like, I have 1400 unread text messages. So if I respond to you, like I, like I'm trying to respond to everybody, you know, but like, it's not personal. We're just trying to figure out how to manage a lot but people are really actually very self-centered in the way they think about um, the world. It's funny because those are always the people who ask me a million questions about self-care. And if my, if my way to manage is just like getting back to you a day later, like you actually, you don't really care about how I self-care. So those things are interesting, but uh, I'm grateful. It's like, we have a lot of work to do. I'm interested. We, you know, after the book tour we're launching, we are working on a lot of projects right now, but we'll be publicly launching a whole set of new projects that, We've been working on for a while, so I'm excited about those. Um, you know, we don't have paid staff, so we have a lot of volunteers with incredible skill sets who are, um, right before I got on this call, we're about to do this thing about voter registration that's novel and interesting and never been done before. So so there are a lot of cool things happening that I'm also really excited about, and I spend a lot of time, I probably talk to Brittany and Sam every day. Uh, Clint, I talk to often too, but, you know, he's not a part of Campaign Zero, he's a part of the pod. Um, so... Like, I'm excited about all the work that's coming that, like, is fun and different and new and never been done and, like, we hope will be as impactful as the police union work we did and the use of force policy work. I've, you know, on that, has it been harder, you know, with the threats and also with what you're describing in terms of interviews, but seem it seems to be, like, day-to-day -day interactions with, with ostensible strangers has it made it harder to trust people? No. Is that, you know, part of this work is like, I have to show up as fully as, as I am in every room and every relationship and, and like hope that people show up as fully as they are too. The team of people I'm close to is the same team I've been close to since 2014. So it's like me, Brittany, Sam, we met Clint. I invited Clint to be a part of the podcast. I've known Clint for a while and he knew people that I knew originally so it's a pretty small set of people that i spend the, the most time with and that was intentional that like 
we all love each other and fight each other like siblings and it works and we know where each other's coming from and like I know where you are I know how you disagree I know how you agree uh, we join a lot of other people's uh, rooms and tables so like we work on projects with tons of other people but in terms of like the people that I'm closest to in the work and spend a lot of time with it's people that I've either been through really hard times with or have just known in really deep ways uh, and that was intentional that like you know, there's some people who criticize us for not being much more a part of some of the bigger coalitions and the bigger groups. And, you know, we were like, we want to be in a place where we can be nimble, where we can do the best work that we possibly can, where we can partner with whoever we want to if we think the work is good uh, and not be limited by other people's relationships or partnerships. And, like, mm-hmm. we kept that true. So that has made it so that, like, trust isn't one of the things that we deal with uh, with the people that we're close to. And we don't participate really in the nonprofit sort of race for funds so that we don't have to, like, do that game. And I'm certainly proud of the work that we've done and, and have on the on the pike to do. Something in this book that really stuck with me, and I read it again this morning, it may be, to me, the, the most beautiful passage. You wrote um, in regards to your mother, who left at three, you said, uh, I want to tell her that a part of me began to prepare for people to choose to leave me one day like she did, and that I stopped believing in unconditional love when she left. I suspect you don't get asked this very often, but is it hard to love? I think that one, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote that chapter was that I'm mindful that we take into um, every room more things than we name. And one of the things that I take into rooms is what does it mean to be worthy and what does it mean to be loved? And the part of my work as an adult has been to to name that, to see it, to recognize it, and not have it hurt other people. And so when I think about like what does it mean to be loved today, you know, which is different than the day to, the day that I wrote that essay, is that like no, it's like I'm able to show up like in the fullness of who I am and like love other people fully and not need to be validated constantly that I'm worthy and what that looks like. So that has been like real learning. And the reason I wrote about it is that like it's honest and it like that is true. And that I think we all have things that we like walk into the room with that we don't always name. And part of our work is to make sure that we recognize a whole host of things that like we carry a lot of things. Everybody's carrying something and we're often carrying things similarly and that we uh, are in community so that we can help everybody grow. And that's what I want that story to do for people. That's what I hope that chapter like helps people to start to think about in their own life. People have written much about your uh, campaign for mayor and I remember donating to this and and being in full support and thought it was a great idea. What did you learn about running for office and and doing that kind of work? You know, I think that like, it's so different when I ran than today that when I ran uh, a couple years ago is that people were like, running for office is not a way to make change that like that's being a sellout that like the best activism is or outside the system like that was like a big thing and now it's like if you don't run for office you don't care right like that it's like a complete sea change in this moment that like everybody's running for office people get it you know i remember when i did a fundraiser in new york city it was literally there was national news it was like deray doesn't believe in baltimore because he's raising money in new york whereas like now it's like we've all donated to gazillions of campaigns that like are not in our hometown because we care about them so that's really different in terms of like the what i learned is like some really 
tactical is like running a small dollar campaign is really hard. There were some days where we raised $10, some days where we raised $10,000, some days that we raised $40,000, some ra- some days that we raised five, right? And like budgeting when the swings were just so great because people were donating in, in waves of $5 and $10 was actually just really hard. So if I had to do it again, we would have just like made up a number that we thought we could raise and we'd spend as if we'd raised that much money as opposed to sort of waiting for the money to come in. We had no real bar. We had no, there weren't any other campaigns like it around the country. So we just didn't know. Um, so that was, I do that differently. The second is uh, nothing replaces like just meeting people. So I probably would have skipped all the forums. There are all these neighborhood forums. The problem with the forums is that the people who go to the forums are the people who have essentially already made up their mind. It was everybody else who really was able to be swayed. It was like all the people who like nobody had ever knocked on their door and all the people who would never ever come to a forum but were going to vote because they were going to vote anyway. Like those are the people that, uh, you know, there were nights that I wasn't able to knock on doors myself, even though the campaign did because I was at a random forum and I probably do that differently. Um, And the third is that like, you know, I ran with 80 days left to election day and uh, at 80 days left, there were, all of the major candidates had no platforms. Like literally they were just like no platforms. I thought that was wild, which is why I ran. Right. Um, you know, I'm still interested in the way that we come to expect the people running for office to like talk about the world that they want to lead us into and how ill-equipped they are to do that. Yeah. Why do you think they're so ill-equipped? I mean, I don't know. That's why I ran. Like, I don't, I think some of it is like, they don't care. They've been, you know, you've been able to win without having to do it for so long. Like, why would you do something different? I think that's a part of it. I think that in cities like Baltimore, the outcomes have been relatively bad for so long that like, and everybody sort of says the same thing. So, so I don't know. I don't know. But it was like really odd to see. I think about even the current mayor of Baltimore, like is calling from state troopers to patrol the streets in Baltimore as a safety mechanism. And like, that's so wild, but I think people are just like hunkered down in their day to day. So I don't know, but it was interesting, like knocking on people's doors and talking to them. They have perspectives. Uh, They don't always get covered in like the local news or like, you know, everybody's not in like some activist collective or some community forum. And those are, you know, one of the hard things about the current moment is that the only way that people know how to think about collective action is, is in like organizations. And if you're not a member of your neighborhood group, you probably don't care about your neighborhood. If you're not, a card king member of this chapter of this and like you aren't real like that's the way most people think um, and that's just not a good way to think about organizing or a good way to think about community or a good way to think about power so it was dope we did like all these house parties and like i'd show up to a random house and they'd have 80 people there and we just like talk and like that to me was like a different way to organize and a different way to be in community that I'd never seen in Baltimore as a young person growing up in the city or as a voter in the city. And like those things like continue to give me hope. What do you think has been the, the most uh, unfair criticism, you know, lobbed against you? It depends on like who is lobbing it. So in Baltimore, people do the like, you've never done any work. I didn't see you. And like, you know, the things I did in Baltimore, most of the people saying those things, uh, are just younger than me. So when I opened up the after-school center, they were in high school. So it's like, yes, we were not peers. Or people don't see, you know, I was a chief of human capital in the school system. I was a number two in human capital in the school system before that. And I trained a third of all the teachers in the city for two cycles, blah, blah, blah. But people, some people don't see that as work because because they didn't see me at the homeless shelter. Like, 
being a part of the food team, then like then I actually don't care about community, right? So it's like these weird ways that activists actually serve as gatekeepers. That's really interesting. Uh, in the education space, you know, I was a TFA core member, and some people just I like, can't imagine that like TFA isn't secretly coordinating every single thing I do in the world or. Uh, they sort of ignore the other work that I've done in education and the sum total of my commitment to kids is my time as a core member. So that's sort of interesting. There are a lot of money rumors about like, you know, all the money we've raised, which we have not raised a ton of money. We raised about $160,000 per year for three years, which is insignificant in the grand scheme of nonprofits. So, yeah, I don't know. I think I'm more interested actually in why people want to believe these things. Like, you know, even when they're presented with the truth, they just sort of like double down. So in Baltimore, when I ran for mayor, there were all these activists who were actually like, you know, DeRay has no support in the city that like even the people right. donating to his campaign are people from out of state. And when it came out that a third of all the, that I had the third highest number of donors in the city of Baltimore, then they just were quiet, right? Like they sort of like continued to, mutter that, that that was even false, even though they could see it in the public data themselves. And like those things I'm always uh, shocked by. Yeah, I, That's the question of why, why do you think people want to believe something like that? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. It's like, that's the question I have too. You know, I'm the person, so I have no clue. You know, people talk about me differently when they are not around me. So I have no clue. I just know what it's like to be the person. So, so Yeah. Is it is it hard to grapple with those two ideas of there's one that's very clear which we've talked about the whole time which is you have dedicated um not just the last 4 years you know like as as a teenager you were the chairman of youth as resources you know you've done so many things at since a very young age you've dedicated your life and yet Despite that, or rather in spite of that, there are people who question your commitment or question your intentions. I have to imagine that's not easy given how much, I mean, how much damn work you've put into all this. Yeah, I try to focus on the work, right? That if I spend all day admired in people's comments about me, that'll be my full-time job. And that's just not why I stood in anybody's street was to focus on that. So it's frustrating. It's a very small part of the way that I show up in the world and the way that I think about the world and the feedback that I receive. Uh, and we have so much work to do that like, you know, despite all the awareness and despite all the work that all of us have done is that the outcomes haven't changed and, and we don't win until the outcomes change. So uh, when I think about what I wake up every day and do, it's like focus on the work at hand. I don't wake up thinking about all the untrue things that people spread and believe about me, even if it is frustrating. Mm. Uh, moving forward, what does winning the the fight look like to you? You know, I think about um, freedom is not only the absence of oppression, but the presence of justice and joy. So part of our work is to tear down all the bad things, but the other part of the work is to build the good thing. So when I think about what it means to win, it's like, we'll get rid of all the bad things. We'll get rid of mass incarceration. We'll get rid of police violence. Like we'll do those things. And then we'll build like what real justice looks like. We'll build a public education system where every kid can read and write. Like we'll build those things. And again, like the focus is on the outcomes that we've changed the conversation. We did it. That was the first outcome. We won. We did it. The second is like, how do we actually change uh, to the outcomes with regard to the, the issues? So like police violence, the police are killing as many people as they were before. The outcomes haven't changed. Mass incarceration is only slightly a, a little better, but not in a way that we could ever call a win. So, um, 
So yeah, like that's what I wanna I wanna look back in fifty years and be like, wow, we fought really hard and like we ended mass incarceration and like wow, we fought really hard and like the police are no longer killing people and we fought really hard and every kid can read and write, uh, and I think those things are possible. Do you, Do you have uh, faith or hope that we'll get there? Uh, you know, I wrote the book called The Case for Hope, so I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope. I believe that hope is uh, the belief that our tomorrows can be better than our today's. And, like, if I didn't have hope, I wouldn't be engaged in this work. I think that people coming outside to fight in the street are, like, people who have hope. Mm. The last thing I want to ask is you lead the book with uh, a Langston Hughes quote. You wrote, we build our temples for tomorrow strong as we know how, and we stand on the top of the mountain free within ourselves. What does that quote mean to you? Yeah, when I think about this, it was like this notion of like, we we build our temples for tomorrow, right? So we build the places that hold the things that we care the deepest about, the places that hold our dreams and our hopes and our joys and our worries and our fears, like the best we can. And we like stand on the top of the mountain, like we sort of, um, we go out into nature, into the world, like we stand in, in, in places that like, show us the grandeur of the world that we live in free you know like free within ourselves and this notion of like i write in the book about what it means to grow up knowing the constraints so well that we part of our survival for people of color marginalized people for sure poor people is that like you learn the constraints really well as a matter of survival so you don't have any money you know how to stretch the money that you do have to go a long way you don't have toys you know how to find joy outside with your hands and your feet like those sort of things and what I think Langston is saying is this notion of like part of the dream work, part of the building the temple for tomorrow, part of that is predicated on the fact that like we are in a place like alone or with other people that we care about, like free enough to dream again. And that's what I want people to be able to do, both reading the book and in, in, in the world that like if we can't imagine it, we can't fight for it. And that is like a core part of a skill that'll, that we'll need to like take us to the other side. Well, I hope uh, one day we'll get there, to the other side. Me too. <laughs> DeRay McGusson, I appreciate you uh, coming on. Cool. Thanks so much, and I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Special thanks this week to Rebecca Marsh, Sarah Storm, and Jessica Cordova-Kramer for arranging the interview, and to uh, DeRay for his time. You can find his book, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope, on bookstands, Amazon, wherever you read. His podcast, Pod Save the People, is available on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. And for more info about DeRay and our show, be sure to visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. All of our past episodes are also there on the site, including some conversations with Paul Dano, Kamasi Washington, and John Cho. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. 
And if you've been enjoying this show, the best way to really help us out is by sharing your love online through social media. Now, if you avoid social media because it is terrifying and time-sucking and, uh, you know, sometimes soul-crushing, you can just pass along the show to a friend. That's another great way for new listeners to find the podcast. As always, Talk Easy is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.